Do I have this on? Good morning again. Well, I'm asking you to stand right back up because we're going to jump right on into it. We're going to look at 1 Peter, again, verses 1 to 12. Hopefully, we're going to get through it. We may have to cut it short. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff in here. Of course, everything in God's Word is good, right? There's not one part that's not good. Um, there may be parts we don't like, but that's our problem, not God's problem, right? We have to conform to what God says. Well, let's pray real quick and let's read from 1 Peter. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your mercy is more. We thank you that we were lost and you found us. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And I pray, Father God, today, if there are any who are still lost, that today would be the day in which they are found. We ask, Lord God, today would be a day in which you plant your truth deep in our hearts, that you would shape and fashion us today, Lord God, that we would be renewed in the image of our Creator today. We ask, Lord God, and claim the promise that your word will go forth and will not come back void, but will, will accomplish all that you purpose today. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. The title today is called According to His Mercy. According to His Mercy. Our text is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. Let me read it for you. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the, sub and his and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which into which angels long to look. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You can see why I said we're going to try to get through it. On my tablet, I have 19 pages of notes. Now, oh, if your first reaction was 19 pages, 
We should be glad we're going to hear the exposited Word of God today. There's no greater thing you're going to do all week than hear the Word of God today. Today we're going to try to look at, we're going to at least get through some of them, we're going to see a source of grace and peace, a source of security, a source of joy, and a source of wonder. A source of grace and peace is found in verses 1 to 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. That's the grace of God. To be an elect exile is to be under the grace of God. In Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. As we said last week, and I'll, this is the, the smallest amount of time is going to be spent on grace and peace because we dealt with it at length last week. And I would encourage you to go back to last week's sermon and listen to it. But may grace and peace be multiplied to you. We saw last week that Peter begins with grace and he ends with grace. And if you're under God's grace, you therefore have God's peace. You are at peace with God. You can't have grace and not have peace with God. It just doesn't work that way. So God himself, Jesus Christ, is a source of grace and peace. He is also a source of security. And here's where we'll send, spend the majority of our time today. A source of security found in verses 3 to 5. He writes this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through a faith, through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What Peter is telling his audience is, is that the, the appropriate response to the providential election of their souls is to give God glory and honor. Blessed be the God, blessed be the God is better translated, blessed God or bless God. Blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ would be a better translation. And the reason that we are to bless God is because He has redeemed us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, in saying, blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is telling us that every aspect of salvation is from God alone. It is according to the foreknowledge of God, as he said in verse 2. Salvation is holy and fully from the Lord, for salvation belongs to the Lord. As we read in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of of God. And the reason God saved us, Peter says, was because of his mercy. Mercy was the motivating factor in God redeeming us in Christ Jesus. Look again what it says at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The word mercy, ilios, special and immediate regard to the misery which is the consequence of sin. Special and immediate regard to the misery which is the consequence of sin. That's from the Complete Word Study Dictionary of the New Testament. God had special and immediate regard for our situation, so much so that He was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. The famous hymn, It is well with my soul, right? Some of our favorites, right? 407, I think it is in the hymnal. I could be wrong on that. How dare I mess that up, right? Um, it is well with my soul, has this line in it. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. Do you know, loved ones, that Christ has regarded your helpless estate? Do you actually know that you're in a helpless state or were in a helpless state? You are beyond. The, the Jeremiah tells us that the human heart is wicked and sick. It is beyond human curing. It can only be cured divinely. Only God can fix the human heart. God is a God of mercy. Above all else, we would say that God is a God of mercy. The very first thing that God says about Himself, when Moses asked to see the glory of God, you know where I'm going, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God, what? Merciful. The first thing that God declares about Himself is, I am a God of mercy. I am merciful. And I am gracious, and I am slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Don't all those others grow out of mercy? Titus, in his epistle, also says it was God's mercy that motivated him to save us. In Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite songs we sung it this morning was the first song we sung, is His Mercy is More, by Matt Papa and Matt Boswell. And I love the line, Stronger than darkness, new every morn, My sins they are many, His mercy is more. What did the prophet Jeremiah say? His mercies are new, what? Every morning. His mercy never runs out. God's mercy is secure and unchanging for the child of God, except in one situation. There's one point in which God says, I am merciful to you. I will be gracious to you. I will give you what you do not deserve. But if you in return do not act merciful yourself, I will withdraw my mercy from you and let you suffer the consequences of your own sin. That is, if somebody has asked you for forgiveness, 
and you refuse to grant forgiveness, God says, so also I will not forgive you. I think that's some of the, that's, that's a, not some of, that is a scary thing. Because how often do we harbor in our heart hatred, displeasure, despise people in our hearts? We all do it. The Bible says unless we forgive somebody from the heart, God will not expect, God will not be merciful to us. See, God expects His children to be merciful because He Himself is merciful. If we're to be like our Father, then we need to be merciful. doesn't mean we need to be a, a doormat and everybody run over us. That's not what it means. It is the mercy of God that Peter says, that God says has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Again, look what it says in verse 3. We may never get past verse 3 today. Who knows? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us. Let me just stop there again. Who caused us? He, God the Father, has caused us. There should be no argument whatsoever about who is the author and finisher of salvation. It is God and God alone. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, we see that it is God who has caused us to be born again. Salvation is solely the work of God. As Jonathan Edwards says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Remember, Jesus had a dialogue with Nicodemus. In which Jesus told them, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember what it said in John 3, 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus doesn't quite get it. He doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. He says, how can it be? Can I go back into my mother's womb? This is not even possible. He was thinking physically. Jesus, of course, is talking about being reborn spiritually. So Jesus answers him in John 3, 5. Jesus answered, truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born of water, that's physical, and of the spirit, that's spiritual, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what does it mean to be born again. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean that He caused us to be born again? To be born again means, means to be made fit to be in the presence of God forever. To be born again means to be fit to be in the presence of God forever. The new birth results in a hope that is living. It is a hope that is not static, but alive because of its source. Look again what it says in verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is not only the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, but He is also the first one risen from the dead before the foundation of the world. He had to have been. He is the what you learned in Sunday school, the first fruits. And go, I think we have the audio. We'll have it for Sunday. Go back and listen to Pastor John on the first fruits this morning. It is so much more than he was just the first one. It's so much more than that. Jesus alone has the power to raise the dead because Jesus rose from the dead by his own power. Remember what Jesus said in John 10, 8, 10 18. No one takes it from me, that is his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my father. Edmund Clowney says about the security of the living hope in the resurrected Christ, he writes this in his commentary. Peter writes of a sure hope, a hope that holds the future in the present because it is anchored in the past. It is anchored in the past. And when we say past, we mean from before the foundation of the world. It's a living hope, it says. It's a living hope because God has life in and of Himself. He is the God of the living and not the dead. The resurrection of Christ means we have no fear of death, for death has been defeated in Jesus. Death does not make one hopeless. Are you afraid of dying? I mean, I'm not going to say death is a pleasant experience. We're not saying that. That we go, oh, I'm going to die today. No. But do you have a fear of dying because you do not know what's on the other side of death? If you're the child of God, what's on the other side of death is life and life everlasting. If you're not the child of God, what's on the other side of death is an eternity in hell. That's what the scripture says. Are you God's child today? Have you been born again to a living hope through Jesus Christ? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you asked God for the forgiveness of your sins so that you would be born again and made fit to be in God's presence forever and ever? If not, why? Why not now? What would hold you back from the greatest gift ever, a gift given by God himself? Death does not make the believer in Jesus Christ hopeless. Does death hurt? Absolutely it does. Does death sting? Absolutely it does. But it's not a hopeless situation. That's what Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica when they asked about what happens to those who die before the Lord Jesus Christ returns. He writes this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. When a brother or sister in Christ passes into eternity, 
We have a service. We have a memorial service, but really it's a worship service. We grieve their loss, but we celebrate the faithful promises of God who says that I have called you by name. I, will hold, I hold you in my hand. I will see you through to the very end. I will not let go. It is impossible for me to let go. That's hope. That's the living hope that we have. The providence of God and the resurrection of Christ secure for us God's Word says, an inheritance. Look again, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the dead, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. An inheritance, by definition, is something that is given. It is not earned. Inheritance. That which constitutes one as an heir. We are heirs of Christ. If we're in Christ Jesus, that what is Christ's, what is God's, belongs to us also. That's what the Scripture tells us. And Peter uses three adjectives to describe this inheritance. Look what it says in verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. That's actually verses 4 and 5. It is imperishable meaning pertaining to being not subject to decay and death, imperishable, immortal. It says this inheritance is not only imperishable, it is undefiled. That which has nothing in it that defiles, unpolluted, unstained, unsoiled, undefiled by sin, morally pure. It is not only imperishable, it is not only undefiled, it is also unfading, it says, pertaining to not losing the wonderful, pristine character of something, unfading, not losing brightness, retaining its wonderful character. Who does that describe? Jesus is imperishable, he is undefiled, and He is unfading. God is our inheritance. Remember what God said to Abraham. Remember when He made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham had just defeated the king of Sodom, uh, uh, the forces that took uh, 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 his son Lot. And he comes back with all the captured people, all the spoils that were taken. Melchizedek comes out to meet him. God comes out to meet Abraham. And it's in, Ab it's in Genesis chapter 15. And this is what God says to him. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. God 
is Abraham's shield and very great reward. And the promises of Abraham are for us also. We also God also is our shield and our very great reward. As James Boyce, the late James Boyce says in his commentary, to have God as your reward means first of all that you share in all that God has. He's a generous God. He shares heaven with us. He says, I go and I prepare a place for you so that where I am, you also may be. This is what it means to be in Christ. To have an inheritance. To have a living hope. To have the mercy of God. That's what Paul wrote. Let's go back in our minds to Ephesians chapter 1. That's quite a while ago. Ephesians 1, 11 to 14. In Him, that is in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to His counsel His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Promise Spirit, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Again, as Edmund Clowney says in his commentary, our inheritance is not simply a land, a city, or even a new earth. It is all that God will give us, His salvation. Our hope is from God and is in heaven awaiting us to receive it on the day of Christ Jesus. It's in heaven for us. Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, writes this, We always thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel. God's salvation is completely secure because God keeps it and because He keeps us. Daniel Doriani says this, an inheritance is a gift based on a relationship, not a wage for a performance. Because the gift rests on the Father's grace and covenant, and because God keeps us safe, our inheritance is safe. This is exactly what Peter tells his audience. And by extension, what God says to us. Look again what it says in verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. There's two key words here that Peter uses. The word kept and guarded. Kept and guarded. Kept. 
is terao. It means to cause a state to continue, to cause to continue, to retain, to keep. It's the word guarded, or really are being guarded, would be the full Greek word. Phoreo, it means to be held prisoner, to be guarded. Isn't that interesting? You and I are held prisoner, are being guarded by God Himself. That has a negative connotation to it, doesn't it? I'm a prisoner? I did something wrong? No. Now we understand what Paul means when he says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am being kept and guarded by God. What Peter is expounding here for us, loved ones, is the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, the perseverance of the saints, actually. The perseverance of the saints. We've been going through, as we took a break for Corinthians, though, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, on the perseverance of the saints. I believe it's chapter 17. It says this, and we would, be, we would do well to memorize this or at least be very familiar with this. It says this, Those whom God has accepted in the Beloved effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit and given the precious faith of His elect unto can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace. But he, ha he shall certainly, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance, from which... From, from which uh, hold on. From which source he still begets and nourishes them in faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And through many storms, and though many storms and flood arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon notwithstanding through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God for many a time be clouded and obscured from them. Yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraved upon the palms of his hand and their names having been written in the book of life from all of eternity. I know that's a lot to take in. Download the notes on our website. Read that again. Look up the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. God will keep His promise. God will keep His children. He will hold you fast. Paul's prayer for the believers in Ephesus was not that they would prosper here on earth, right? I'm sure he prayed for that. John, in his epistle, prays that uh, they, would, they would prosper here in this world. There was nothing wrong with asking God to bless somebody physically, financially. I pray that for people all the time. I prayed for myself, actually. Why would I not? 
But Paul wasn't, doesn't focus on that they would proper, prosper here on earth because we can get caught up in the trappings of earth. Rather, that they would view their time here on earth in light of their glorious inheritance. Remember what Paul prayed in, 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 in Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. We've got to go way back in our study in, in Ephesians. He asked that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of their heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His what? Glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul says, I want your mind to be filled with what is the glorious inheritance that is yours in the saints. And what is our glorious inheritance? It's God Himself. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might? that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also on the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Our inheritance is completely secure. It is secure because it comes from God who is infinite and He does not change. This inheritance is imperishable. It does not fade away like the rewards of earth. Now, what did Jesus say about treasure in heaven versus treasure on earth? What happens to the treasure on earth? Moss, moth, rust, mildew, it fades away. But in heaven, there is no such thing. There's no such thing as decay because it's undefiled. It's unfading. There is no loss of value in heaven. It's impossible. If anything, it continues to gain in value. It will never lose its value. It has eternal value. It is kept in heaven for us by God. And while our inheritance is being guarded by God in heaven, we on this side of eternity are being guarded by God's power. His perfect, unchanging, unlimited power through a faith that results in a salvation to be revealed in the last time. God is keeping us and guarding us just as He is our inheritance in heaven until we leave this earth through death or until Christ returns. What Peter is telling us here is that our source of security is the predetermined plan of God, which is secured in the resurrection of Christ and activated by faith. And this security of ours has now become a source of joy for us. A source of joy. Look what he says in verses 6 to 9. In this you rejoice. In what? I rejoice in the fact that God has an inheritance for me, that it is undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for me. In this you rejoice, though now, 
for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you do not see Him, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The word that Peter uses here is agialio, means to rejoice greatly means to be extremely joyful, be filled with delight, to rejoice. How often do we stop and think about who God is and all that He's promised and guaranteed? Have you you ever really contemplated that and not had a sense of joy? When we really sit and contemplate who God is and all that He's done, as I think Steve Lawson said on our video series on Wednesday night, you cannot be in the presence of God and yawn. There's nothing boring about God. It would cause us to rejoice. Jonathan Edwards says this, let the mouths of God's people be filled with His praises for saving them from sin. See, the follower of Christ derives joy not from the things of this world, though they do have a degree of happiness in them, let's be honest but rather from God Himself. The child of God is joyful because God is securely keeping them. The child of God, therefore, can rejoice even in times of trial and suffering. Look at what He says again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, if necessary. You know, there are times in which God will allow trials to come into our lives. It may be for the fact for us to learn to trust God all the more. It may be because we've gone into an area of sin and God's going to remove that from us. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." There are four reasons that Peter gives for the child of God to have joy even in the midst of trials and suffering. And some of you right now, listening online and sitting here, are in a time of trial. And you're in a time of suffering even. Please listen to what God says to you today. Know that your trials are just for a little while. They are for a little while. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. We need to have eternity in focus in the midst of our sufferings, in the midst of our trials. 
What does the, the prophet say? What is your life? It is but a vapor. It is here today and it is gone tomorrow. But if you're the child of God, your time on earth is the smallest part of your existence. The smallest part of our existence is on earth. It's for a little while. Now, it may not seem like a little while. Do you know what I'm going through, Pastor? Do you understand what I'm going through? No, I'm not in your situation. Is your situation heart-rendering? Absolutely. Is it bringing you right up to the edge? Absolutely it is. Has God let you go? Absolutely not. Has God's promises stopped? Absolutely not. Is God going to be faithful? Absolutely. The one who's being faithful, well, we're the question mark when it comes to faithfulness, not God. But understand that it's for a little while. That there is absolutely no way God will let this trial, this suffering, overtake you to the point of you being lost to eternity. It is for a little while. Take comfort in that. That's hard. I get it. But that causes us to seek God's face, to believe God's word. It is for a little while. Secondly, trials strengthen our faith. Of course, if I don't understand the first part, I'll never get the second part, right? That just doesn't work. If I don't have a proper eternal perspective, then this part doesn't matter at all. Trials strengthen our faith. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. What? Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Isn't it interesting that he compares to the gold? How many of us would love to have a bunch of gold coins right now? I mean, what's gold going for an ounce? It's almost $2,200, $2,500 an ounce. That's a lot of money right now. And we view gold as the most precious commodity on earth, right? It's not. The genuineness tested of your faith is more Precious than gold that perishes. You know what's going to burn up when Christ returns? This earth and every mineral with it. Every precious metal will be burned up in the heat of the glory of Christ. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, though you, you have seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Again, Edmund Clowney says this, God sends trials to strengthen our trust in Him so that our faith will not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. The fires of affliction or persecution will not reduce our faith to ashes. Fire does not, does not destroy gold. It only removes combustible impurities. 
Let me read that again. God sends trials to strengthen our trust in Him so that our faith will not fail. Our trials keep us trusting. They burn away our self-confidence and drive us to our Savior. The fires of affliction or persecution will not reduce our faith to ashes. Fire does not destroy gold. It only removes combustible impurities. James says this, James 1, 2-4, you know what I'm going to read. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, you have various kinds of trials. And fourthly, of course, if we have the first one, the second and the third, we'll have the fourth. Trials produce greater love for God. Trials produce greater love for God. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here it is. Though you have not seen Him. Has anybody here ever seen God? No, not a single one of us has seen God. Again, I'll tell you, any of those people say, I went to heaven and I saw heaven and I saw God. You're a liar. One person went to heaven, possibly, possibly. Paul and John got to see heaven and possibly Ezekiel. That's it. No one else is going to heaven. And if you ever did go to heaven, why in the world would you ever choose to return to earth? There's something wrong with you. It says, in this rejoice, <laughs> though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Don't you see, when I contemplate the goodness of God, when I see that it is by His mercy that I've been brought from death to life, that it's by His utter love for me that Christ came and died on the cross and rose from the dead, that God has made me fit to be in His presence forever, then I can understand that our light and momentary sufferings are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed to us at the coming of Jesus Christ. I don't see Him, but I love Him. You know, the only analogy I can think of is when you're going to have a child I don't see that child. I have a sonogram. You, I get what you're saying. But you moms will know, I've not seen this, but I love him. I love him. I can't wait to see him. I can't wait to see her. Dad, same way. It's the same thing. I haven't, I, I haven't seen, I, I don't see him, but I, I cannot wait to see him. No wonder Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed to you at the coming of Jesus Christ. When I have my mind focused on the right point, in the right way, the trials of life 
and I fix my eyes on Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, the things of earth begin to what? Fade away. We obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what do trials do? They are, what we need to know about trials, they are for a little while, trials strengthen our faith. Trials produce greater love for God. I think I did three, but I said four. Finally, so, finally, it is a source of wonder. A source of wonder. He says this, concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have been in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Peter says concerning this salvation, meaning it is a salvation that is set apart from all other forms of salvation. For this salvation, as Peter has already stated, is from God. It is a salvation that is completely outside of humanity. So wonderful is this salvation from God that the prophets of old who prophesied about the coming salvation searched and inquired diligently about it. They searched and inquired about a salvation that was to be ours. It was theirs also. Let's not forget that. But the picture that he's having, this picture of source of wonder, that you have Isaiah writing about the suffering servant. And I can imagine, who is this God? I got to know this God. I want to be there. I want to see this God. Jesus said this in Matthew 13, 17. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He says, you understand, Peter, how blessed you are? You understand, you 12, how blessed you are? How blessed are we to be this side of the cross? and have the full canon of Scripture available to us. Isaiah didn't have this. David didn't have this. Peter didn't have this. Paul didn't have this. We have it. They wrote it. Yes, I get it. But it's ours. They had parts of it. They had pieces of it. We have all of it. And it is ours. And it should be a source of wonder. Just to be clear, when Peter writes, by saying the grace that was to be yours does not mean that they, the prophets themselves, were not saved. They were saved by the same grace of which you and I are saved. Grace by faith has always existed. See, the prophets of old wanted to know about the sufferings of Christ. Isaiah spoke the most about the suffering servant in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 52, and 53. They also want to know about the subsequent glories of Christ after His sufferings, where He was exalted to the name that is above all names. See, the prophets of old were driven by the Holy Spirit to write these things and were themselves never to see it realized in their time. It was thus that they were serving us. 
It is they who have given, who have gave the foundation for preaching the word today. Prophecy was given through the Holy Spirit in their day, and today preaching is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. The prophets of old were concerned primarily with the grace of God, and our preaching today should be also. The grace that God gives to fallen man displays for us the glory of God. This grace of salvation is so great that the angels long to look into it. In other words, the angels have no ability to comprehend what it means to be made a new creation. They don't know what it means to be called out of darkness and into His wonderful light. They are morally perfect beings created by God. They cannot be saved, but we can. And salvation should hold for us a wonder. It should capture us. It's one thing to go out and look at the mountains and be wow in awe. But if you see something in nature, something that just blows your mind, you're like, wow, look at that. It should bring you right to God did that. And look how wonderful this earth is. God has a place called heaven for me. God has kept me, is keeping me securely in his hand, and I will see him one day. Is God a source of wonder for us? Do we ever stop and really contemplate and think about the goodness of God, of how much he's loved us, that he's given us a faith that is more precious than gold, that he has promised that what I have started, I will finish because I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am your beginning and I am your end. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercy. According to your mercy, you have saved us. Lord, thank you for the great and precious promises that are ours in Christ Jesus. Thank you for a glorious inheritance that we have. Thank you, Lord God, that you are keeping us by your own power so that one day at the return of Christ, we will be given praise and honor and glory. Help us, Lord God, to have eternity in mind Help us, Lord God, to play the long game, as it were. For your glory we ask it. Amen and amen. Let's close in a song. I invite you to stand as we praise the Lord for the blessing of his word. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.